Hello everyone and welcome to the November 19th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and let's get started with our litigation report. A new unbank WCAB decision clarifies the burden of proof for lien claimants. Here's what happened in the case of Tito Torres versus AJC Sandblasting and Zurich North American Insurance Company. Torres claimed that he sustained continuous trauma industrial injuries to his spine and bilateral lower extremities in 2003. The defendant, Zurich North American, denied his claims. And in 2005, the cases were settled by compromise and release. The settlement listed outstanding liens and provided for their disposition, but neither Unitech nor its lien were listed. In 2009, Green Lien Collections filed a notice of appearance on behalf of Unitech. In 2010, Green Lien Collections filed an original lien claim on behalf of Unitech, together with a copy of an unsigned health insurance claim form dated back in 2003. After the October 2011 lien trial, the parties stipulated that applicant claims to have sustained industrial injury arising out of and in the course of employment and that Zurich was the employer's workers' compensation insurance carrier. No witnesses testified, and despite having identified several exhibits in the pretrial conference statement, the only evidence offered by Unitech was a copy of the 2003 unsigned insurance form from Unitech addressed to Zurich. No evidence was offered by Zurich. The work comp judge found that Unitech failed to carry its burden of proof and ordered that it take nothing on its lien. In addition, the work comp judge found that the proceedings to trial with only an insurance form was frivolous and a waste of court time and ordered Unitech to pay a $750 sanction plus attorney fees to the defendant. Reconsideration was denied in the en banc decision of Tito Torres versus AJC Sandblasting and Zurich North American. The WCAB concluded that after an applicant's underlying claim is settled, a lien claimant becomes a party and stands in the shoes of the applicant. Like any other party, a lien claimant bears the burden of proving all elements necessary to establish its claim. The WCAB further concluded that Labor Code Sections 3202.5 and 5705 mandate that a lien claimant must prove by a preponderance of the evidence all elements necessary to establish the validity of their lien before the burden of proof shifts to the defendant. The prior cases of Kiefer and Garcia, insofar as they held that a lien claimant can establish a prima facie right to recovery simply by introducing a billing statement showing that services were provided to a worker in connection with a claimed injury, have been nullified by sections 3202.5 and 5705 of the Labor Code and subsequent case law. The WCAB also held that proceeding to trial without any evidence or with evidence that is utterly incapable of meeting its burden of proof is frivolous and constitutes bad faith. Unitech bore the burden of proving that applicants sustained an industrial injury, that it rendered medical treatment in connection with that injury, and that the treatment was reasonable and necessary to cure or relieve the effects of that industrial injury. 
Prior to trial, Unitec was warned that the evidence it proposed to introduce was utterly incapable of proving its claim. By electing to proceed anyway with only an unauthenticated billing statement, Unitec acted in bad faith and wasted valuable court time on a claim that was indisputably without merit and frivolous. A WCAB panel decision adds more exceptions to the list of allowable QME ex parte communications. Here's what happened in the case of Nelson versus County of Solano. Nicole Nelson, who was a social worker for the County of Solano, claimed to have sustained a psychiatric industrial injury. She was evaluated by psychologist James O'Dowd as a panel QME provided to an unrepresented worker. Dr. O'Dowd sent three emails to the applicant. First, he said that he would seek out and send her the paperwork to use for the evaluation that evening. Second, he sent her the claim adjuster's phone number. Third, he informed her that he had found the employee disability questionnaire and that she was all set for his evaluation. The Workers' Compensation Administrative Law Judge denied the employer's request for a replacement panel of qualified medical evaluators based upon the employer's objection to these three communications. And then the employer filed a petition for removal asking that the order denying their request be reversed. The employer contended that the strict prohibition against ex-party communications between a party and a QME allows the employer to terminate the medical evaluation by the present QME and to obtain a new panel of QMEs. But the WCAB denied the petition for removal. The WCAB noted that in the case of Alvarez versus WCAB, the Court of Appeal provided that an ex-party communication may be so insignificant and inconsequential that any resulting repercussion would be unreasonable. Thus, the WCAB concluded that in this case, two of the emails were concerned with the employee disability questionnaire that it needed to be completed prior to the QME examination. Thus, they were, quote, in connection with the examination, end quote, and the prohibition against ex-party communications does not apply to them. The sending of the claims adjuster's phone number was also insignificant and inconsequential. Thus, there should not be any repercussion as a result of these communications. And now our fraud report. The San Diego District Attorney's Office is launching a campaign to spread awareness that workers' compensation fraud can get you in trouble. District Attorney Bonnie Dumanis announced a public awareness campaign with 65 billboards across San Diego County in both English and Spanish. Fraud costs California consumers $4 billion a year. This anti-fraud message will be seen by an estimated 1 million people every day in San Diego County. Over the last four years, the San Diego County District Attorney's Office has convicted nearly 400 people of workers' comp fraud and obtained restitution orders of more than $6 million. The office is currently investigating nearly 300 cases. The campaign is being funded through a grant from the California Workers' Compensation Fraud Assessment Commission and the California Department of Insurance. 
Since 2008, the DA's office has sent mailers on the issue to nearly 200,000 employers, <clears throat> run ads on 340 movie screens, and produced 200,000 posters to display in workplaces. A former El Dorado Hills businessman has been arrested on charges of running a multi-million dollar insurance fraud that victimized a California Indian tribe and a host of employers. 43-year-old Gregory J. Chimlewski was arrested last October in Arizona on fraud and money laundering charges. He was being held without bail following his arraignment in U.S. District Court in Sacramento, where he pleaded not guilty. According to the indictment, Chimlewski set up a company in Roseville called Independent Management Resources to provide low-cost workers' compensation insurance to construction contractors, roofers, and other high-risk occupations. Chimlewski partnered with an Indian tribe, the Fort Independence Indian Reservation of Inyo County, to establish a company called Independent Staffing Solutions. The tribe owned Independent Staffing Solutions, but Chimlewski's firm essentially ran it. After getting clients, he then allegedly began diverting and misappropriating millions of dollars for his personal use. Chimlewski's firm filed for bankruptcy protection in Nevada in 2008. Court records say his firm owed the tribal uh, organization $7 million. Prosecutors said the employers that bought coverage, as well as the Indian tribe, were victimized by Chimalewski. Charles Pratt, the tribe's vice chairman, welcomed news of the arrest. Independent Staffing Solutions was one of several tribal insurance companies that sprang up in California in 2003 when workers' comp costs were exploding. The companies said they could offer workers' comp and other services much more cheaply than traditional insurance. The Department of Insurance cracked down on these new companies, saying they weren't licensed to provide coverage. Independent Staffing Solutions tried to pass itself off to clients as a tribal-run company. If convicted, Chimlewski faces up to 30 years in prison, plus fines, according to federal prosecutors. Actor Tom Hanks is among four victims of a Thousand Oaks insurance agent who was arrested after a federal grand jury indicted him, alleging he overbilled clients more than $800,000. Jerry B. Goldman was taken into custody at his home on federal mail fraud charges after an FBI investigation led to the grand jury indictment. Along with Hanks, Goldman's four victims include musician Andy Summers, a member of the band The Police. The indictment alleges Goldman used his Newbury Park Insurance Agency to obtain various insurance products for clients, some of whom were overbilled by as much as 600%. According to the indictment, Goldman negotiated premiums for insurance coverage for a variety of properties and other insurables on behalf of his clients, and he was paid commissions by the insurance provider on each policy. Goldman then allegedly created fraudulent invoices on his company's letterhead that inflated the premiums that were due. From 1998 through August 2011, Goldman allegedly received overpayments of more than $800,000. Each of the 10 counts of mail fraud alleged in the indictment carries a statutory maximum penalty of 20 years in federal prison. 
And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has posted answers to frequently asked questions about SB 863 on its website to help stakeholders better understand and prepare for upcoming changes to the workers' comp system. DWC Acting Administrative Director Desti Overpeck said that the goal is to help everyone understand SB 863 so they can be prepared. The DWC intends to update the pages as soon as new questions come in and each set of regulations is implemented. Senate Bill 863 was passed on August 31st and was signed into law by Governor Brown on September 18. The bill takes effect on January 1st, although not all of its provisions will be effective immediately. The SB 863 FAQs include implementation dates for each set of regulations. The DWC is now working on the proposed inpatient hospital fee schedule regulations. DWC has electronically distributed the second 15-day notice of modification to interested parties and has posted the modified regulations on the DWC website. Members of the public may comment on the modifications until 5 o'clock p.m. November 28th. The modifications in this draft of the regulations clarify how outlier cases are determined and how reimbursement is calculated. The cost for spinal services for discharges both before and after January 1, 2013 are also discussed, and changes to the additional allowance for spinal devices used in specified complex spinal surgery MSDRGs are contained in these regulations. A list of additional documents added to the rulemaking file is provided, and the documents are available for public review at the DWC's office located at 1515 Clay Street, 17th floor in Oakland during normal business days and hours. Cheswick has published a guide to developing workplace injury and illness prevention programs for California employers. This guide was prepared with help from the Labor Occupational Health Program at the University of California, Berkeley, as part of California's Worker Occupation Safety and Health Training and Education Program, known as WOSHTEP. WOSHTEP is administered by the Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation in the Department of Industrial Relations through a number of interagency agreements. This guide was developed to help workplaces in California comply with Cal OSHA's Injury and Illness Prevention Program standard and consequently protect the health and safety of their employees. The guide was specifically prepared for the people who write their workplace injury and illness prevention program and for those who participate in its implementation. The guide was developed as a companion to the worker occupation, safety and health training and education programs online IIPP fill-in-the-blank template. WASHTOP has also developed fact sheets on different health and safety topics, as well as tools to help implement a program. A copy of the employee's written program must be maintained in a central location, as well as each worksite if there are more than one. All employees must be informed about the program and how the elements of the program are carried out in your workplace. An employer should regularly review and update its IIPP in order for it to remain effective. Cal OSHA assesses whether workplaces have living programs, that is, 
ones that are actively implemented and routinely updated as needed. An employer can use WashTEP's electronic online injury and illness prevention program template to help document the elements of their program. And in medical news, despite the growing popularity of steroid injections to treat various kinds of back pain in recent years, a new review of past research finds the shots do little to alleviate sciatica, a common condition that causes leg and back pain. Australian researchers analyzed results from nearly two dozen clinical trials on thousands of patients and found that epidural injections into the spine of corticosteroids had no long or short-term effect on sciatica back pain. And such a small short-term effect on leg pain, it would make no difference to the patient. Chris Maher of the George Institute for Global Health in Sydney, Australia, who worked on the study, said that this treatment is no longer good to do. Nevertheless, the use of epidural steroid injections to treat back pain of all sorts among Medicare patients nearly doubled from about 740,000 in 2000 to over 1,400,000 in 2004. In the U.S., the cost of one injection can be several hundred dollars. And a tainted supply of one of the steroids included in the trials under analysis recently caused a nationwide outbreak of fungal meningitis that infected 400 people and led to 31 deaths. Past studies have already questioned the effectiveness of spinal steroid shots for sciatica, which is thought to be caused by nerve damage. Instead of steroid injections, other options include simple pain relievers, such as acetaminophen, drugs that treat pain by working throughout a person's nervous system, and as a last resort, surgery. Not everyone agrees that steroid injections should be excluded from the hierarchy of treatments for sciatica. Dr. Kirkham Wood, chief of the Orthopedic Spine Service at Boston's Massachusetts General Hospital, believes an injection should be considered, for example, in someone with sciatica resulting from a relatively recent herniated disc in cases where time and medication has not helped. Dr. Wood does believe, however, that the injections are overused and said there was a time when the injections were the go-to treatment for simple back pain. He agrees that the pendulum is certainly swinging away from their broad use. The meningitis outbreak in the U.S. will also likely dampen enthusiasm for the shots, according to researchers. And in financial news, AM Best Company reports that the workers' compensation line of business has stabilized, showing a 10% growth in premium volume. The 10% premium growth during 2011 outpaced other commercial insurance lines, which reported only 4% growth in net premiums written. But despite favorable pricing trends, profitability challenges still persist. Positive growth in workers' comp premiums came after five years of declines. From 2006 to 2010, when a comp combination of competitive pricing, a series of consecutive rate increases often related to statutory reforms, poor employment, and challenging macroeconomic conditions put significant pressure on the workers' compensation sector. Despite the 10% growth in 2011, 
Workers' comp premium volume was still 23% below its peak of nearly $50 billion in 2005. Going forward, AmBest said it expects workers' comp profitability will remain challenged due to an increasingly competitive operating environment and the cumulative effect of rate increases. AmBest also found that the largest workers' comp insurers remained unchanged for the third straight year with Liberty Mutual Insurance Companies retaining its top market position, followed by American International Group. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I am Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.